Hi, I'm Shreen Patek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to marketing leaders who are changing the industry one decision at a time. My guest today is a DTC brand founder who does not necessarily believe in the DTC model. Mike Grillo found viral success when he, via the publisher Futurism, launched Gravity Blankets, a weighted blanket that launched on Kickstarter. Today, the two-year-old company, which now operates on its own, runs lean, has $28 million in revenue, and is profitable. And unlike the trope of DTC brands, bloated on VC, alive on Instagram, and only online, Gravity went mainstream early on, selling on Amazon and in stores. Mike and I talked about the impending DTC shakeout, why it's important to not depend on Facebook, and why DTC might just be a launch strategy, not a business model. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Mike. Welcome to Making Marketing. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. As listeners of this podcast know, I'm obsessed with sort of the wellness movement, um, and I think it dovetails beautifully into that. But I think the origin story of Gravity is actually really interesting because you were born not sort of as most, you know, direct-to-consumer, born-online brands these days are, which is... Hey, I was at Harvard and I had a problem yeah. and then I decided to or fix pen, the problem yeah. or pen or fix the problem. Um, you're actually born sort of out of a publisher or media world. Uh, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about how it all came about uh, and how it all happened. Yeah, totally. I had joined a company called Futurism as their COO uh, in late 2016. They had uh, just raised a little bit of money uh, as big as a publisher uh, could raise at that point. And um, we were thinking a lot about, you know, the competition that faced. Facebook was giving us from like a digital ad perspective, we were big, but not big enough to like command huge ad dollars. Mm -hmm. So the concept was how quickly could we diversify revenue? We were paying a lot of attention to what BuzzFeed was doing um, with their homesick candle line, with their tasty one top. Um, but because we were in this more like science space, we were looking at our readership, uh, a lot of articles on sleep and the science of meditation and the physiological effects those would have on the body. And so we figured like, let's play in the sleep space. Um, we're researching products uh, in that space and came across weighted blankets as um, something that had been around for some time, but very specific to like um, specific patient populations. So specifically um, like it within psychiatric hospitals or, um, you know, uh, children and adults on the autism spectrum. Uh, but there was some interesting research, like peer reviewed research on it. And so we thought, you know, we could take this, uh, contemporize it, give it a, a new style, uh, put some brand around it and make obviously some improvements to the product itself. Uh, and that's what we did. And we launched it um, on a Kickstarter powered by Futurism, the publisher. And it sort of like grew into a beast of its own. And it went super viral because totally. I remember I think there were there were there were a lot of articles yeah. um, right after it happened. And I think, you know, we wrote a lot of them because I think that the publisher commerce and I'm sure you, you got this question a lot of the time was sort of an unsolved model. And I think at that point, especially as media companies decided that Facebook wasn't yeah. going to uh, save so them the and might actually do something terrible to them. Commerce or product was a big potential um, potential revenue source. What did you launched on Kickstarter? It became really big. How how did it sort of work with or work alongside sort of the actual publishing business? Because obviously now it sort of runs on its own as yeah. its own completely separate entities. How did that happen? Totally. At the time, Facebook was still giving publishers a lot of love when we launched. We launched in April. Uh, 2017. So we're coming up on our two-year anniversary. But at the time, uh, yeah, Facebook was giving a lot of traffic. Video views were like through the roof. I mean, we would put up, uh, Futures and itself would put up videos, you know, easily 10 million views on these videos. So we took 
a lot of advantage of that early on and launched quite a bit of content from futurism.com, uh, a lot of video content, and it was driving a ton of traffic, um, this time not to futurism.com, but to our Kickstarter page. And we quickly amassed, uh, you know, our best estimates, like on the first day, we were all taking bets. We we're thinking we'd do like a hundred grand all in on the program. And we did that within like the first hour that we were live. Um, the second day, we got a big Today Show segment that drove a ton of traffic as well. And so, yeah, it was just sort of, um, the, the relationship was very much like a, almost like an the way you would think about affiliate marketing, mm -hmm. but we were owning the full product. Um, so that's how we were do doing it was early Was it on. difficult kind of... Uh fulfilling a lot of that because again you had insane demand yeah, but maybe yeah, you yeah. Didn't really quite um, there were only two of us working on the project myself and a couple of contractors um and yeah we after we wrapped the campaign we had you know thirty thousand orders to fulfill in 75 countries and i had not made physical pro i'd been working in marketing and advertising my whole life so felt very comfortable on the brand side um, but we hadn't done any like fulfill i'd never done like fulfillment fulfillment before so it was uh, quite daunting <laughs> to to fulfill all those orders um I like that you've talked about, you know, marketing advertising, because um, let's talk a little bit about kind of the gravity business model as yeah. it kind of stands right now. What totally. does it actually look like? Because, again, you're now, you know, that origin story aside, you are now your own company. You run sort of basically completely separately yeah. from futurism and you're not a publisher commerce experiment anymore. You totally. are a DTC brand. That's that's correct. Well, although, yes, we are DTC or we were born DTC. But I think as we'll get into, I don't necessarily like perceive DTC to be a business model per se. Like it's it's just sort of a way to kickstart your your program, right? It's it's very hard to get in store with these retailers still, but 90% of shopping still happens in physical spaces. So the notion that you're going to build a scaled business solely on direct to consumer, especially if you haven't taken fundraising, which a lot of the DTCs have, just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So for right now, uh, Ono is definitely owned and operated, is still like our biggest driver, but we're, you know, very healthy Amazon business. Um, we're we're drop shipping uh, e-com with almost every retailer you could think of. So Target, Bed Bath, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, mm -hmm. um, even uh, throwbacks like the Sharper Image, um, which actually does quite a bit of volume for us. So we're, we're really trying to diversify from like a sales channel perspective. Mm -hmm. so how, how did it start though? Because you obviously started mostly online. Yeah, yeah. We started, you know, well, obviously on Kickstarter, um, but then sort of quickly moved to gravityblankets.com. But I will say... Uh, Sleep Number, actually, which is uh, the sort of like high-tech mattress brand, reached out to us very early on, um, almost right after the Kickstarter concluded, and was like, you know, are you guys interested in doing something for Christmas? Because this was, we wrapped around like May and like started pre-selling again on our dot-com, and so they were starting to plan their like um, mm -hmm. holiday 17 setting. And at first, everyone's like, no, stay DTC because you're going to start giving up margin, you're going to start giving up customer lists. But for us, it felt like, uh, I wasn't really thinking about it. I, I'd be lying to say it was like a super strategic move at the time, but mostly I wanted the substantiation from a separate brand because we were getting a lot of like flack as just being a Kickstarter darling. So being in the Sleep Number store gave us a bit of, you know. So like, what was the deal that they would? Uh, they purchased wholesale. They would purchase wholesale and, so and, and they would be deal. part of, yep. you know, somebody goes to buy a Sleep Number mattress. They can also see yep. that these blankets are available. Exactly. And they were bundling and all that sort of stuff. And right. so that was our first sort of foray into traditional like brick and mortar. And from there, we just sort of got a lot of 
more inbound interest. We were networking into the space just because we were so, I was so paranoid the whole time that we were going <laughs> to drop off a cliff. Um, as with any of these sort of digitally native brands are, you, you, you can't be too cocky about like, oh, I'm going to go build a billion dollar business now because mm-hmm. the market shifts so quickly. Wellness, while I believe it's super long-term sustainable category, um, is pretty nascent um, in terms of like the, the market uh, in and of itself. And so, yeah, we were just trying to early on diversify as much as we could. That's a and that's a very different model. Yeah. I don't think a lot of, uh, again, born online, DTC, digitally native, whatever you want to call them, we'll call them DTC for the purposes of the podcast, but they're born online. They, you know, whether they take funding or not, and there are most that have to, the ones you hear about most often yeah. are the ones with the big, you know, big VC injections, but going um, sort of this this feeling that you didn't just want to be known as the, that Kickstarter brand or totally. these days it's just that Amazon, uh, that Instagram brand. That's right. Yeah. Is very is very real. It's a it's a very real fear, I think, for a lot of founders and a lot of um, companies starting out. But at the same time, you were willing to kind of give up that control pretty early on. Yeah. What was walk us through that debate a little bit because that's a difficult question that a lot of brands are trying to answer right now. Totally. I mean, you always run the risk of. Um, I remember early on, Amazon was talking to us about uh, how they you know, they could now help us like manage all the freight forwarding from our factories as well as our fulfillment because we do do Amazon FBA. And one of our questions was like, well, what's going to prevent you guys if we give you access to our factory? Why wouldn't, you know, that seems a little bit dangerous from like, a, you know, <laughs> a, a brand IP perspective. And right. the re- response back was, we're Amazon. If we want to make it, we're going to make it regardless of if you let us into you see us, if you let us see the factory or not. So that was sort of like, yeah, of course, every, if they if Target wants to make one, if Walmart wants to make one, they're going to make one. So why? So there's no competitive advantage by not selling. Right. Exactly. They're going to be there if they want to be there. So might as well get there as soon as you can. The The other thing was we I sort of learned a hard lesson on the publishing side when you're so reliant on one platform. So a lot of the DTCs haven't seen this yet because Facebook obviously has been very generous to these digital native brand so far. But on the publisher side, when Facebook decided they were going to pivot, I mean, Futurism's traffic dropped, you know, dramatically. And we the, the team there has spent a ton of time rebuilding. And now I would say it's a much healthier traffic than it was before because it's direct traffic. But I mean, we saw how negatively we could be impacted when you're so over-reliant on one sales channel. And so I would say the two, the realization that they could, these retailers could do their own versions very easily. And then B, what a pivot from uh, the platforms could mean to us if they decided they didn't want to support a DTC brand anymore. Uh, those sort of like, wisened us up really quickly about about having to move to like a more diversified approach. That's really interesting, um, especially kind of the platforms give and platforms take away. And yeah, I think totally. you sort of, you saw it again from, I think the media, and those of us in media that kind of sit here, um, I mean, just the news kind of over the last week or so about Amazon, you know, waking up one morning and deciding what seems to be to arbitrarily, but yeah, it's probably part POs of it. With, right. yeah. And they might backtrack now and there might be, you know, this is just a glitch, this is just short term, but totally. one change on a platform platform side can affect entire fortunes. Yeah, exactly. What and yet you were still you're still okay kind of as long as it's diversified, it's okay because at least your risks are equal mitigated. Anyway. Yeah, that and we try to, you know, from a product strategy standpoint, we're always trying to 
I, I think the biggest thing that, um, you know, a lot of these DTCs are facing is that like innovation to me is not like the way you're like just marketing DTC is not innovative in and of itself. Right. So that you have no moat when you're doing that. And so for us, we're, we're really trying to build new products constantly and hold them back to our owned and operated channels for as long as we can before we give them back to give Amazon. Give me an example. Yeah. So our weighted sleep mask was the second product we developed. It's actually like pending utility and design patents. I was the first sort of like weighted sleep mask of its kind. And it's our second biggest seller. I mean, granted, it's a much smaller price point, so it sells for $29.99. And then we have a heating and cooling version that's um, coming out this year that'll be a little bit more expensive. But I mean, we sold probably 20,000 units of it last year. Um, and so th that's, you know, for us being able to bring that to bear and hold it back to our owned and operated for as long as possible was, again, part of that strategy, that give and take strategy with the retailers. There's so many. Uh, it's interesting because there's so many different strategies yeah. I think you're seeing. Uh, let's talk a little bit, though, first about what you just said, you know, that firstly, DTC is a growth strategy, is a launch strategy, right. and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a growth strategy, and it doesn't mean it's definitely a business model. Right. Um, I think a lot of people disagree, right? A lot of people out there are saying that DTCs are going to change the entire business world and world of how brands are, are created and built and grown very, very dramatically. Right. Um, I'm definitely, and you know, I've been talking about this a lot, that I, I agree with you. I think you're seeing a lot of things happen where these DTC brands are essentially turning into regular brands right. and starting to face the same challenges. Totally. Um, do you think that there has been kind of a real success, quote unquote, in DTC, as, as, as we're calling it? Yeah, I mean, I think... He, I think the, the problem is, and it's an amazing story for them, but when Dollar Shave Club sold for a billion dollars, I think that set this- Everybody likes to tie it's like yeah. Dollar Shave Club. Remember that? I, I know. <laughs> I, and I think that set like a really unhealthy, that's an amazing exit for them, but they were, timing was everything, right? Like no one really understood the market, this DTC market. And um, the acquirer just wanted to hedge their bets. They didn't want anyone else to buy it. And they, they didn't want- They want P&G to exactly. get them. Exactly. Right. So they shelled out a billion dollars. I think you're not, those are, that's going to be an exception rather than the rule. And so um, the players, you know, Casper now is like has, you know, their own stores. They're in Target in a real meaningful way. And that's really the, I mean, they're the the biggest example of like how you, you can't just stay on your own and operated for too long if you're really trying to build a scaled business. So is this is is what most and, you know, I'm asking you to kind of speculate a little bit here, which I'm aware of. But is is the goal that you'll exit, not you, but yeah. you'll exit out and you know a big legacy company mostly through because of fear and that's not a bad thing no, but no. because of a competitive fear will say okay we better invest in them it seems like an okay business look dollar shave club wasn't profitable when, no 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 and they hadn't been profitable <laughs> for right. quarters um before they even got sold but at the same time they've managed to go inside unilever and then expand and they just you know for saying just last week they're going to do more products yeah they have skin care now they men's skin care now yeah. and that's that's one of the beauty one of the most beautiful things about especially wellness dtc yeah there's a big stretchable exactly right you could do anything it's very malleable it. sure. right exactly so is the goal as you see it for most of these other dtc companies who've got a ton of vc funding um to say okay hopefully somebody buys us or we're going to figure something else out? yeah i think that's the tricky thing um as with publishers, you know, taking on a ton of like VC investment, the valuations become at some point too large for a potential acquirer, especially in DTC where there's, in, uh, there are exceptions, right? But like if you're just a razor or if you're just a, I don't know, any name the DTC of anything, right? If there's no real IP, there's nothing stopping 
um, at this point, right? Like, there's nothing stopping PepsiCo from just making it themselves. But nobody like, has, but very few of them have IP. I'd argue that 10% of these companies totally. have an actual IP, and right. the rest of them are really good at marketing, which, again, is not a bad thing, because right. marketing's difficult. But, but then but... you're sort of an ad agency, right? Which is the interesting part. <laughs> but So, back to the point, I think the the real play for us and what we aspire to do is to do what Tuft & Needle did, right? Um, you know, grow sustainably. For people who might not know, just go yeah, to the Yeah, they're, a, uh, you know, one of the many sort of like mattress brands that have popped up over the last, I would say, like five to 10 years, um, but didn't take on uh, a ton of venture debt. You know, we're growing, but not like, you know, you know, double, triple digit growth year over year, which is what you need to, to sort of maintain that DTC confidence or that, um, that VC confidence. VC confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we aspire to do that. Like we grew 60% last year, but I don't know, like, can we grow 60, hundred percent every year? And I don't really want that pressure. So for us, you know, paying attention to profitability, we were profitable in our first year, okay. uh, growing at a sustainable pace and then exiting at a reasonable valuation. You, you know, the notion that you have to exit for, you know, three X revenue. Dollar. Yeah. Not every, <laughs> it's going to be hard to, your your acquirer set is quite small when you're asking for like 3x top line on a digitally native brand it just we've already been hearing stuff that's like honestly DTC should start thinking about like multiples on EBITDA rather than on top line because it's just right. the numbers become out outrageous you know and the and I think the cost structures I find really interesting yeah. can you explain how again just knowing what you know about these companies how those costs work out because look Facebook and Instagram might be might be working but they're extremely expensive yeah. You're also seeing a lot more of these companies recognize how expensive that is. I mean, CAC is yeah, yeah. up, growing, um, sure. growing like crazy. And so you've got all these mouths to feed. You've got VCs who need that. You need to do a lot of marketing to appease that VC, um, all that money that the VCs have put into you. You have to do marketing because also your category is so brand well, driven. Right? So yeah. brand driven. And anybody can do it, right? How yep. many how many hair loss treatments are you seeing right, on the I subway know. this morning? I yes, saw three. It's true. Um, how does those cost structures work out? What is actually, what's even really happening in there? Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of the money, especially when you're pressured to grow like that, you sort of grow regardless of the efficiency of the CAC, right? So like, I must drive triple digit growth. So, and I just raised whatever, $10 million. So you can just dump that money into Facebook and Instagram and not pay too much attention to like what your cost per acquisition is, um, which is sort of another reason to think about retail, right? Because you're sort of, the marketing is happening for you, not to the greatest extent that you would see on Facebook, but you know, when we place, uh, fulfill a purchase order to one of our retail partners, we don't really need to do any more marketing. Certainly you hit, you get a hit on your margin, but sort of it's, it's their responsibility to sell through. So if it's Target or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's how we're thinking about that. The other thing is we're really thinking critically about TV and sort of the emergence of TV or the reemergence of TV um, in the in our in our world, right? So now that you can buy TV programmatically, you could buy remnant inventory. It's actually, and it's very trackable now because if you're buying on a connected TV, you connect the IP address to, you know, we can even cookie the website. So you're seeing the same type of attribution or or a, a version of that type of attribution as you do on Facebook and Instagram. And it's frankly like at this point, the buys are, are smaller. Hmm. Um, the efficiencies are, are close. So, and you're diversifying away from just Facebook and what Instagram in general. What kind of returns do you see on TV? I'm curious. We, we only ran a local spot this okay. past year, but we're going to be moving into, I think starting like mid-April, we'll be doing a large scale like connected TV buy across here, like Hulu's of the world and all that stuff. And you're right. I think, I think a lot of, again, these digitally native brands and rightfully so you founders who grew up in an age where they expect a certain level of trackability. I mean, they're yeah, not going exactly. to be okay with kind of the olden days. So having that level of sophistication of that, especially come to yep. with connected TV, um, 
almost feels like a this doesn't have to be an Instagram brand. This this and this it gives almost us makes it feel really. Uh, I think when people see something on TV, they just believe it more, right? So that's a good question. That's what I was going to ask. I was like, yeah. does it? It lends. It still has a little, a little bit of little credibility. Bit of it has cachet for sure. And frankly, it is. I mean, like I'm a. I, to your point, like my whole career was built on Facebook and Instagram. But there's something to be said about like when you're a non-skippable like 50 inch <laughs> TV that you're actually in the mood of viewing and you're not just sort of scrolling through it aimlessly. Like that is still a very powerful platform and I think that will also help sort of potentially offset some of those really high acquisition costs that are yeah. that are sort of driving on Facebook. Um, let's talk again sorry I cut you off but I wanted to talk a little bit more about retail because I think retail gives you yeah. also that sense of legitimacy. Totally it's seeing really something on, on shelf is huge. Yeah I was I was talking to um, an agency person the other day who really understands a lot about DTC and she was you know she was like I think the number one thing that she's noticed with the clients that uh, potential clients that come to her is that she's like they just don't understand the value that a flagship yeah. or even a store will have for their business and she's like because I basically was like what is the number one thing that these founders often first time founders and people again who grew up in Instagram and Facebook yeah. and are really good at it they don't they don't appreciate the value of physical um, yeah. and we have seen a little bit of resurgence at least in the headlines of physical retail totally I mean for us our first uh, play there well I uh, there's two, right? There's like our wholesale relationships. And then we do have like physical presence. Uh, for us, our first one was at Showfields, which is the sort of like direct consumer mall that's uh, <laughs> cropped up on 11 Bond Street. And that's been really fascinating because the amount of people that uh, you know, we see converting not necessarily always physically in store, but they've tried in store, especially for an experiential product like us. Like when you say, you like, I want to get under there. Totally, exactly. It's a, it's a high price point, um, and so that that's been really transformational. And I think brands that are definitely more experiential should be thinking really critically about you know what is your sort of physical space strategy now with like companies like Beta, which is um, are you familiar? It's yeah. like another type of like. Um, DTC mall type thing where we're now we're going to roll out uh, by the end of the next month we'll be in 10 locations um, across the country that are just sort of like um, you just pay a very small amount of rent and they let you keep it's the retail as a service yes kind exactly of model. how 100%. does that work yeah for us Showfields is our sort of biggest one in that we have a really built out space we have this elaborate like dream wall where you could like write a dream and take a dream and so that's sort of our like bigger one so and it's a little closer to what your brand actually yeah, it's, it's not a, just sort it's of a manifestation like... of the brand but the other ones are sort of relatively small monthly payments and then uh, some will take like an uh, also like a very small percentage of sales like between 10 and 15 percent some will let you just keep 100 percent of the proceeds and so that's been how we've sort of tested our like sort of owned store model and we, we might open up one or two um yeah it's it's a really and great easy way are good at least as yeah, far as all of the all of the them. stores that we're in right now are at least break even, um, which is sort of all we were hoping to do because uh, you can't think of everything as like a, a commerce forever. For us, it's like you want people to experience the brand. We want the cost to be mitigated, and that sort of gives us this broader halo of like they'll try in store, they'll buy online. We see that quite a bit. Um, I do think that's really interesting because I think the new competition, I, I'm sure you remember, like a couple years ago, you talked to any retailer, small, big, um, DTC, not DTC, and it was all about AR, it was going to be about yeah. VR, or like even, oh, our big our big strategy is to make a store that <laughs> feels amazing when you walk into it. But totally. I think you are seeing a little bit more of this reality check. It's actually, no, it's logistics and it's fulfillment right. and it's, you know, making sure that people are getting stuff on time. And that means building out really complicated sort of structures internally and yeah. then the inevitable things that come come with that. Do you feel like there's sort of this like reinvention of retail happening where people are just being more real? Because I do think that that's interesting and at odds with this insane bubble of DTC with the billion dollar companies yeah. also happening. I mean, it's really, time. we looked into like physically opening our own 
true store and it's really expensive. And then on top of the staff that we're managing in house, you know, we're, we're a team of 12 plus vendors and sort of logistics folks. You have to hire like a, a you know, floor team, right? Which is like a whole nother game that you, you have, have to, to start managing. Them, yeah, right? exactly. So the nice thing about these sort of like retail as a service models is that we actually don't have any employees of our own in those stores. They're sort of like, you know, we, we go through trainings with their staff and they sort of manage and process payments for us. Um, but yeah, that's a whole nother part of the, the pie. If you're trying to get into that game, you have to train a floor staff. You've got like store operations and it's just a whole nother skill set that I think a lot of these brands are not necessarily like equipped to handle right off the bat. Yeah. L- let's talk a little bit about that ecosystem system, though, because um, you're right that there is a, a plethora of companies that are almost springing up to service these new types of brands yeah. like yours, because you're, you're not going to sit around trying to figure out all these things that you don't have to when you can outsource that to yeah. an expert. Um, but then at the same time, it's sort of it's the same agencies doing all the branding. Yeah, 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 it's for the, sure. And, you know, Shopify is a great example of sort of somebody who's really built this ecosystem around it. What does that ecosystem look like? once sort of DTC grows up. Yeah, I mean, Shopify is, is is truly an amazing platform. And I believe that they're sort of like, will continue to be the anchor from like a actual transactional standpoint. I mean, you have that, you have your payment providers, your payment processors. Um, we work with a company that helps you like split your payments in half so we could offer like payment plans to our customers. Um, then you, are you just talking about like the- What about internal training too? Yeah, I mean, we have, you have your Zen desks of the mm. world. Um, we have Customer a mix service. of like in-house, we, we try to keep as much of the uh, CS in-house as possible. Um, but then we do have some outsourced customer service that handles more like transactional like returns and whatnot. Mm. Do you we, keep your marketing mostly in-house? Marketing's all in-house, yeah. Okay, why? Um, I think that's... Having come from an agency? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally. I mean... Uh, agencies are in general like a little messy right now. I think they're they're facing a reckoning from like the Fortune 100 brands. And so if those brands are complaining about price, there's just no way that, especially like a lean startup like ourselves could afford to pay agency fees. Like we, we looked into it and we were with an agency for a minute, mostly on the media buying side. Right. But even then giving up 15% of spend when we're scaling spend pretty aggressively, like, you know, a million dollars a month becomes 150 grand that we're out just in agency fees and I could hire great talent with that in, internally. Yeah. It goes back to the cost structure thing. Totally. Where are you going to spend this pretty limited amount of money yeah, exactly. keeping in mind that you're profitable and yeah. you want to stay profitable? And I think the other thing is like for an acquirer, growth is such a huge part of the mix. So to have your growth team or your, w- these brands, what we have is our, our actual brand, our creative, and then our growth strategy. So to outsource that, I think puts you at a pretty um, unappetizing place for a buyer who's like, well, what do you, what exactly do you have in house then, right? <laughs> yeah, so we we're, we have operations in house and uh, growth marketing in house. Awesome. Uh, I can't let you go without talking about Amazon because I do think yeah. it's interesting that you, you know, are so open, firstly, to yeah, yeah. being on Amazon because again, you're seeing. Um, we just did a did a story just looking at how much more Amazon wants these sort of digitally native brands on yeah. the site, and that makes sense. Look, these are these are brands that could be on the site, and at the same time, a lot of them because really. All all they have, they feel, is sort of the brand itself. They don't want to want give, to give that up. up. But you were absolutely okay with it. Yeah, I mean, just a couple things. So first for us, Amazon was kept reaching out to us and they were like, people are searching Gravity Blanket online and you're losing, uh, on the Amazon platform and you're losing a so ton of commerce. alone. Yeah, I mean, that's what was driving the weighted blanket category on Amazon was the word Gravity Blanket. So we were quickly like, all right, let's get this brand registry set up, finalize our trademark, and then begin to at least just capture some of that. And the other piece is that, I mean, it, I think you'd be foolish to say that like, I, 
ten percent of shopping's e-com, and then most of that is Amazon. So why I don't understand why you would alienate. Like people are going to be buying your stuff or your equivalent on Amazon. So why would you give it up? So right? what is the worry? I mean, one worry we already kind of discussed, which is this, which to me is a little bit what if, like uh, Bro, well, sure, what sure. if they come and say we'll build our own gravity blanket, our own luggage, our own whatever, which they could. To your point, they could do regardless. Right. Maybe being on the platform gives them a little bit of a leg up. Totally. They already have the data and maybe they have more competitive knowledge, but they could do it. Is there any other really good reason to not for these on. companies not to be on? They, you know, worry about the customer data piece, like emails are sort of our lifeblood. Building that list is important. I, I mean, that's really, I mean, you're getting, Amazon is giving you a stamp of approval, especially if you're prime, right? Like people want that prime delivery. And so I just saw, we saw way more advantages than disadvantages on it. And I think if you're smart, you hold back SKUs, you hold back some exclusivity to your owned and operated. So we still get people, they'll buy something on Amazon. They're like, oh, I also saw the faux fur duvet. Where's that on Amazon? And we're like, actually, you have to come to our own site okay. to get that. So you so, do sort of split. You're not going to offer every single thing on yeah, Amazon. Yeah, we're and- super strategic about what we give to Amazon and what we give to our retailers and mm-hmm. try to make sure that there's like the best uh, mix possible. So it doesn't worry you. Well, I mean, it, I, it worries <laughs> me. But you know, what are you gonna what are you gonna do, right? You can't. They're the, one of the biggest companies in the world. If they want to make a weighted blanket, they're gonna do it. So might as well take what we can from them, if that totally. makes sense. Uh, last thing is the DTC bubble going to burst? Is this the year? I've been hearing a um, lot of 2019 is the year, but then I hear that. Every I don't year. know. I think um, as. I think as Casper goes, the industry will go. So just very curious to see like what ends up happening with them. Um, we we know them really well. They're really awesome guys. I'm just sort of curious to see like what happens. Uh, what, well, what do you wh- think will happen? I don't know. I mean, they... What are the different things that could they, they could IPO for sure. They could sell. Um, they're pretty... It's a pretty hefty valuation at this point. So I'm not sure who the, who the buy set is, but there are certainly companies that want them really badly. So, and I think once you see what happens with them, what their ultimate exit or path trajectory turns out to be, you'll start seeing the rest of the folks sort of uh, follow suit. Like, is the goal to, our goal, at the, I don't I don't want to run a public company. Sure. That's definitely not <laughs> something I want to do. I mean, we're looking for a, a very practical um, exit within like 24 months. But in, in the meantime, like building this wellness brand has been really fun and, and a passion point for me, so. Amazing, great. Mike, thank you so much for being on Making Marketing. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Give us a shout out on iTunes or tweet at me. I'm at Train Batek or send me an email. I can't wait to hear what you think. This week's shout out goes to Katie Joy B who wrote on iTunes and said Shireen and her incredible guests talk about all things marketing, not only providing insights we wouldn't have, but also giving business owners the tools they need to get hands on with their business. Thanks so much for putting out such a spectacular show. Shireen, keep up the great work. And thank you for the kind comments, Katie. I hope you continue to send us your thoughts about the show. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.